Y'all, in Ephesians chapter 3 is the end of section 1 of the book of Ephesians. Um, look, there are a whole lot of people that would look and say that Paul, up until this time in this letter, has really been wasting his time because he's, all he's been talking about is theology, doctrine, you know, the, the, the great expansive ideas about God. But I want to pitch at you tonight, and really for the rest of the semester, that the, the way in which Paul even lays out the letter of Ephesians says something really profound about the Christian life. And it simply is this, one sentence. You cannot live practically without right beliefs. Look, I mean, because it's interesting to note that for a lot of these people, they were facing at their time some fairly awful suffering. Uh, there were terrible things going on with these early century Christians. But here's the deal. Paul has gone through three of six chapters and has not once mentioned their intense suffering that they're going through. And you would be tempted to look at that and say, how impractical. <laughs> Give me a break. Come on, Paul. Get down to the brass tacks. Give me something that I can use in life. I need something that's practical, right? But what Paul, I think, is going to say to us is simply this, and it's in the very structure of this letter, is that if you really want to fix your life, if you really want to deal with your life at a foundational level, you've got to get down to the most fundamental assumptions you have about reality. In that sense, everybody, in some sense, possesses a set of beliefs. Everybody. On the one hand, whether you are Bill Maher in Religious, I watched this movie, you have to watch these things when you're a minister. Um, you know, Bill Maher suggests that the problem with society is religious theological conviction. That's the problem. Never bothering to say the fact that he feels strongly enough to exert an opinion, which, guess what, is a belief. In other words, the more you try to get rid of beliefs, even from a secular view, the more they kind of creep back up. But what's funny is I've even noticed, even from the Christian world, that a lot of people look at it like, ooh, doctrine, you know. We don't want to pay any attention to any of that sort of stuff because that's totally irrelevant, right? That's the kind of stuff that we don't want to sort of get into because we just want to believe the Bible. You ever heard anybody say that? We're not into theology. We just want Jesus. You can do all your heady kind of theological stuff. We're just taking it at brass tacks. We're just taking the basics. But are you really? The truth of the matter is whenever you say that you believe in God or you believe in Jesus, you have a certain idea about what that person is that you're talking about believing in. And so guess what? You're in the realm of theology. Look, I'm just trying to say that doctrine, fundamental beliefs about life is inevitable. Everybody's got a theology. Even the most ardent atheist has a theology, views of God. The question is, is it, is it an accurate theology? Is it one that really matches up to the God of this Bible? And so Paul finishes up his theological discourse with these people by praying for them. And y'all, for our purposes, I simply want you to see that Paul does not spend his time in his prayer praying about these people's circumstances. He's not praying, oh Lord, save them from the terrible suffering they're going through, even though that's not wrong to pray. He doesn't say, oh Lord, please cause them to sort of get out from under the oppression that they're in the midst of. He doesn't say that. What he prays for is for their beliefs. He prays for their knowledge. And he wants them to move into their spiritual roots and ask the question, why? Why am I even seeing the world the way in which I am? Why am I even asking the questions about my life that I am? 
What is it that's motivating my sense of sadness or my sense of elation right now? What is it? And so Paul sums up this extraordinary prayer to show exactly what the Christian mind ought to look like. Look, y'all, this semester we've been trying to figure out how to get our spiritual bearings from the map that Paul gives us of the real reality from God's point of view. And what we find out tonight is we see Paul giving us the structure of our inner life. The way in which a a Christian structures what's going on in here or in here, wherever you place it in your thinking. And I want to suggest to you that that, that, that there's a sense in which it's almost like a tree or like a well-developed plant that's dug deep down into the earth. And there extend from that plant four primary roots. Four primary roots that come up from this prayer that instruct us about what our inner life is to look like. There's four things. Number one, there's strength. Number two, there's love. Number three, there's knowledge. And number four, there is fullness. Catch that? Strength, love, knowledge, and fullness. Let's dive in. Number one, Paul says that the first aspect of these spiritual roots is that there is a strength there. In other words, Paul says he prays for these people to be made strong by something. Now, interesting, the way he qualifies that, though, and you can take a look at this, is that we want to be, he's wanting for us to be strengthened according to the riches of his glory. Now, look, y'all, the question that I want you to ask for just a second is, what is God's glory? You see, when you first read that passage, you tend to think that what Paul is saying is, is I want you to be strengthened by the riches that God's glory is to you. And you think to yourself, right, God's glory is such a rich thing. Wow, doesn't that make me feel rich? That's not what the passage is saying. He wants you to be strengthened by the idea of what God's glory is. And you realize that we've already talked about this. And honestly, we breezed past it because I knew we would come back to it again in chapter 1, verse 18. Do you remember what Paul said there? Paul looked and said, if you want to know what the glory of God is, if you want to know what his inheritance is, if you want to know what makes God feel wealthy, are you ready? It's you, if you are in Christ. Look, y'all, in other words, what God primarily puts in order to reorient our inner man is this singular idea that God treasures you. He treasures you. Hey, you know, last week, uh, while y'all were at spring break, uh, the new list of the world's billionaires came out. You might see this. And it turns out that there are 24 uh, more billionaires this year than there were last year. (laughs) Comforting, I guess. I don't know. Is that good news? I don't know. But you know, whenever I think about those people, a billion dollars, you know, a billion dollars, what what do you do with a billion dollars? Even worse, I've always liked to wonder... Who is it that is saddled with the responsibility of buying birthday presents for billionaires? I mean, think about this for just a second. You know what? (laughs) What do you get for the person who has everything? No, no, like everything, like a billion dollars. How how do you get creative? Well, I got you a tie. It's a nice tie. How How do you make someone who is that wealthy feel like they treasure something? Okay, ask that question about God. What could possibly make the one who owns the cattle of a thousand hills feel wealthy? 
Paul says, you want to strengthen yourself on the inside of your mind and your heart? Wrap your mind around this thought that when God looks at you in Christ, he feels wealthy. That billionaire is blown away by that. Now look, I simply want to pitch at you that to the degree that that truth gets into you and that you take it in, you begin to have strength. Let me give you a quick example. For many of us, we find ourselves struggling with all kinds of personal defects in life. Let's say that you say that you struggle with with self-control. You struggle with self-control, doing the right thing at the right time. And if I ask you, why do you have so little self-control over your life? My guess is you're likely to say something along the lines of, well, I just don't have enough willpower. Uh, I've tried to stop drinking. Uh, I've tried to stop partying. I've tried to stop looking at porn. Uh, I've tried to stop obsessing about my looks. Whatever. But I just can't. I wish I just had more willpower. wish I had more strength. But here's what Paul is saying is, in a subtle way, is, y'all, that is so superficial. What Paul wants you to do is to go deeper to go into the inner man, to go into the roots of your life and say that it is most possible, and I would even say that it's most likely, that whenever you encounter spiritual failure in your life, your tendency is to first change your view of God. Am I the only one who wrestles with this? (laughs) Like when you look inside and you don't see the stuff that you know is supposed to be there, It's almost as if my view of God completely transforms and I've got this idea of him standing over me with his arms kind of crossed, with a scowl on his face, and this thought in his mind of, oh, you did it again. And there's a part of me that looks and thinks that that disappointment from God will somehow give me the initiative to stay away from the thing that I wasn't doing. Look, y'all, I think Paul is looking and saying, no, I think the moment that you change your view of God from being a loving, doting father to a harsh, condescending taskmaster, that is the minute that you fail. That's where you fail spiritually. Look, y'all, you will never change your life until there is a change in the way in which you view God. And you'll never change the way in which you view God until you change the way in which you understand He views you. What does he see in me when he looks in me? We have a suspicion that he's merely tolerating me. But Paul is saying, no, he's not. (laughs) In Christ, you're his treasure, his masterpiece. Let that sink in. And guess what? You become a person of strength. That's the first thing. Secondly, though, we find that the second root that goes down into our heart is the root of love. Paul wants us to realize that there is love in our inner lives. And he wants this thing to be rooted and grounded in us, according to him. In other words, we're supposed to have deep roots and a firm foundation if we have love. You see the images that he's using there, don't you? Uh, He talks about, first of all, a well-rooted tree on the one hand, and then he talks about a well-built house on the other. (laughs) 500 Alexa is a well-built house, by the way. (laughs) On the podcast. (laughs) The question is, though, This is an edit in the podcast. How does love do that? How does love turn me into a person that is as stable as a well-rooted tree or a well-built house? How does that happen? Well, think about it for a second. The only thing that can upset a tree or a house, we've had an example of it this last week. When the tsunami, the earthquake and the tsunami goes rushing across Japan, 
we begin to see that what happens to trees and to houses and any large object is that suddenly it comes in conflict with a destructive force. And when that destructive force meets that, that stationary object, it, tem- it, it tends to tear it down. It destroys it. It brings destruction in its wake. Paul says, look, love will actually neutralize the tsunamis of your life. That's what it's able to do. Love removes the windstorm, the storm surge from your inner life because that tends to keep you from, that tends to make you tear down other people. Look, y'all, love that gets rooted in the heart of a Christian tends to reorient everything that you do when you look at other people. To be honest with you, before you, before we relate to God on the basis of His grace and not on our performance. Before we start to learn to figure that out, do you realize how powerful your sense of group identity is? I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure we've all embraced this enough at Old Miss. Because the truth is we always have to prove ourselves with our group identities, don't we? It doesn't matter. There's a group out there. Honestly, my group hates that other group. And we may not say that we hate them, but we at least condescend to them. We may ignore them. We'll build our life in exclusion to that other group. And we find, honestly, that we oftentimes joined certain groups as an expression that I find that group over there very threatening. Group identity is a huge motivational factor in the life of a person who has never dealt with the deep-seated insecurity that's at the heart of everybody. And it always shows itself in disdain and condescension to other groups. But here's what Paul is saying. He's saying a sign, though, that you're being rooted and grounded in the love that God gives you is that suddenly you begin to meet other people for whom formerly you had nothing in common at all. And you suddenly find yourself connecting with them. You suddenly find yourself showing respect to them. You suddenly find yourself praying for them. Why? Here's the fact. Because you have found a love that has demoted your group identity. You want to know why? Because he is my identity. He has put me on a foundation that is not at the whims of the group around me. And whatever reputation it has on this campus or in my hometown or in the world. Look, y'all, when this begins to take root in your heart and it becomes the foundation of everything you do, Paul says you're going to become settled. You're going to become someone who is not torn down. That when the tsunamis of life come in, you'll stand like a tree that is planted by rivers of water. You'll be like a house that was built on the rock and not on the sand. Love can root us and becomes that second root for us. Thirdly, the third sort of root that sort of digs down and creates this inner life is the idea of knowledge. This is interesting. In verses 18 and 19, Paul starts to talk about comprehending something and and this knowing In other words, for Paul, the Christian life has a foundation in knowing. In other words, the Christian life is not this idea of, well, look, y'all, here's a standard. Here's what it means to live up as a Christian, so let's try harder. No, 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 no. Paul is saying right acting will always be a result of right knowledge. And I want to make two points about this idea. Right acting comes from right knowledge. Now, what knowledge is that? And I keep trying to get around to this, but I'm going to say it in yet another way. Paul is saying that he is blown away by what he has found in Christ. Y'all look at verse 18 again, because the truth is, most of the time when you read this, you think that he's kind of doing some poetic hyperbole, you know, where he looks and says, um, 
You know, the, the, uh, to, to, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Yeah, that might look a little bit poetic, but I, I think something more fundamental is happening here. I think what he's saying is, is that the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind. John R. W. Stott put it this way. The, lo- the, 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 the love of Christ is long enough to last for all eternity. The love of Christ is deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner. And the love of Christ is high enough to exalt him up to heaven. Look, y'all, in other words, Paul has found something worth celebrating. He has had his noodle baked by the idea that God could love him in that way. I struggle to find illustrations for this. And 1990s folk music is probably not a good path to go down, but we're going. Back in the 90s, Ginger and I got really interested in this folk singer. Some of you may have heard of him. He's a North Carolina guy by the name of David Wilcox. If you never discovered this guy's music, it's still really good. And a favorite song of mine came on one of his albums. It came out in the mid-90s, and I still I find myself singing the song a lot. The name of the song is called Someday Soon. The whole concept behind this song is that he's basically saying that he loves the idea that there's always a someday soon. Someday soon is the simple idea that there's still something to reach for tomorrow. Someday soon I'm going to grasp at something that that I'll only get in part, but then there's going to be another someday soon. And what he's celebrating in this song is that there's a beauty to that. There's a beauty in knowing that I can keep on discovering and never come to the end of it. So that when he gets to the bridge of the song, he says this. He says, and if heaven is perfection... I know that I'll get my deepest questions answered. But in that big hall, you can see him imagining heaven as a big hall, I hope that there is a bright red ribbon that stays wrapped around the mystery of the someday soon. Do you see what he's saying? This is incredibly thoughtful. What he's saying is, is I really hope that when I get to heaven, I want to be able to know that I will never get to the bottom of what I see in the face of God. Now look, y'all. What Paul is saying is, I want your mind to be blown with the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of the knowledge of God, of how much He loves you, that you can sit there and stare at it for years and decades and centuries and millennia and never get to the bottom of it. Look, if you're, even if you're here tonight and you don't believe any of this Christianity stuff, don't you wish that that was true? About something? That you could sit there and stare at something and it never get old and never get to the end of it. Paul is saying, I want you to see that in God. And in the way in which he loves you. Now, but you didn't notice the fact, and this is my second little point about this, that he threw in a zinger right across the bow on this. Because did you notice how he qualifies how this this love there that he wants us to know? Look back at 18. And may have strength to comprehend, what does he say? With all the saints. Underline that one. That's a big one. With all the saints. Look, y'all. I think what Paul is saying is, is that the primary means that you are going to come in contact with this experiential knowledge of the love of God. And here's the thing. For most of you, that's where you went to. 
in the last three and a half minutes of my sermon, you were thinking to yourself, wow, you're right. Boy, if I could just look into this, mm, I'm going to think about that some more. I'm going to go to the Grove tomorrow, and I'm going to sit, I'm going to think about it. <laughs> and it's all going to be here, you know. Y'all, I just got to get alone, you know, away from all the people so I can just think about God's love. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Knock yourself out. Think about God's love. Paul says that's not where you primarily find it. You want to find it? You're going to find it with all the saints. Ding, ding, ding. You don't find it in isolation, kids. You find it when you're in community with the glorious, wonderful, frustrating, sinful, selfish, encouraging, confronting person that is sitting right next to you in the pew right now. It's coming. <laughs> Y'all are all looking at each other being like, yeah? nah. <laughs> you don't know this person. <laughs> Look, y'all, the Bible looks and says that if you want to know the love of Christ, it's not going to be primarily a mental affair. It's going to be a relational affair. You find it in community, people. You find it where that is located, in the service of those. Especially, by the way, in the brokenhearted. What God is saying is go dive yourself into the brokenhearted, into the people that are hurting, into the poor, both economically and spiritually poor. And there you'll find me in a way in which you never would, sitting in a moment of meditation. Look, y'all, I'll be honest with you. For many of the conversations that I have for you, your spiritual declines tend to coincide with your relational isolation. Did you catch that? I'll be honest with you. Whenever I see people getting the most radical in their thinking, whenever I see people getting the most sort of overly dark in their thinking, or where they start to sort of think out onto the fringes of life, it's when they're the most alone. And I can always tell, you haven't been around like a real human being in a while now, have you? Look, y'all, you want to know the love of Christ? You want to have this knowledge? Guess what? The knowledge will never be purely theoretical. It will be relational and experiential. Learn that knowledge, and you start to be rooted in your inner life. All right, fourthly and finally, this is the good one. <laughs> the fourth one is that there is fullness, right? There's strength, there's love, there's knowledge, and then there's fullness. Look, y'all, I got to be honest with you. You're going you're gonna to work hard to find in the Bible a statement that is higher than the one that we have right here at the end of what Paul says in verse 19. Because he looks and says, he wants you to be filled with all the fullness of God. What in the world does that mean? Well, the grammar there suggests that Paul is not saying that we are filled with what is in God, that is, we get a little bit of deity in us. But what he's saying is, is that we are to be filled unto the fullness of God. What that means is, is that Paul is praying that we will all be filled up, whatever that means, to the degree that God is a full being. Did you catch that? I'll say it again because you missed it. It's more important than that. <laughs> he says, I want you to be filled up to the same degree that God is a full being. Now, what does that mean? Okay, once again, two thoughts. The first thought is this, because I want to bring you in experientially into this moment. I want to bring you into my experiential moment. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I don't know if anybody here knows what I'm talking about, but I bet you there are a lot of people that, knows what I'm that know what I'm talking about. 
There are tangible moments in my life, and sometimes there are more often than others, where I have trouble describing what's going on here with any other word than the word empty. Am I the only one? Look, y'all, and the strangest thing is at the, at the ripe old age of 43, I can't figure out when it happens. <laughs> there are times in which I get that yawning emptiness in moments of great personal failures. Times in which I'm looking around at my life and being like, good job, Les. But you know what? There are times in which it occurs to me at the height of my successes. There are times in which that emptiness comes and crawls in on my mind when I am all by myself and completely isolated from everyone that I love. And there are times in which that emptiness crawls in when I am surrounded by the people who love me the most and who are shoveling encouragement in my way. And I don't have any other way to illustrate this. I've been thinking for three weeks of how to illustrate this. But here's my thing. I'm done trying to figure that out because I think some of you know what I'm talking about. Where you start to take a simple little glance. Maybe it's in those quiet moments that you get to before, you, before you're able to go to sleep at night. Maybe it's in those moments between class where nobody's really distracting you and you're, you're just alone with your thoughts. But when you look on the inside, it's just empty. Paul is looking and saying this, and this is my second point, that I want that to go away forever. Paul is saying, my prayer for you and your inner world is that those feelings of emptiness would be gone forever. And to look and to to be swallowed up, and we ought to be asking ourselves the question, if you've ever been to that place, if you've not, congratulations. But if you've ever been to that place, you ought to be looking and saying, how? How in the world would that ever happen? And I think, and this is my second point, that Paul is thinking about something that happened when Jesus was on the earth, when he was gathered with his most closest disciples the night before he died. And as he gathers with them, he prays a prayer that the theologians call the high priestly prayer. And in John chapter 7, verse 26, we see Jesus praying to his Father about us. And he says this. He says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known to them that the love, listen to this, listen to this, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Did you catch that? Jesus is saying and praying for you to say, I want God, my Father, for you to take these people who are dying on the inside of emptiness, who look up and don't know if they want to get out of bed today or not. And he's saying, I want to bring them up into the eternal, never-ending fullness of the love that you and I have had from before the foundations of the earth. There is nothing higher than this. (laughs) I, I, I like to daydream sometimes about what it must have been like for Jesus to go back to his father after the resurrection. The resurrection, he spends these days appearing to people and whatnot, and all of a sudden he ascends up to his father. 
What kind of party was there there when Jesus returns back to his father after experiencing the, the, the horror of the cross? What was that reception like? Because what Jesus is praying for you, and I think this is what Paul's talking about, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God, is that there is a destiny that is at the end of every person's story who knows Jesus tonight that ends in being caught up in the eternity and the wonder and the brilliance and the never-ending glory of the very fellowship of the Trinity. C.S. Lewis calls it the great dance. (laughs) An eternal dance where we are simply caught up. I'm not saying that we become God. That's not what Paul is saying. We don't become little gods or little deities. He's saying, no, it's better than that. You're going to be brought into the family. And you're going to be able to experience the tangible love that the Son has with the Father from before all eternity. Look, y'all, Augustine said this. There is a God-shaped vacuum inside of your heart. That is that emptiness that you feel. It is the absence of God. And yet Paul is looking and saying, if you find yourself in Him, you will never face that emptiness alone. Let me ask you a question. What is structuring your inner life tonight? What kind of turmoil do you have there tonight? Because you would be lying to say that even if you don't buy into a word of this Christianity business, you would be lying to say that this is not beautiful. And here's my simple question to leave you with. What if it's true? What if it's true? Let's pray. Jesus, if it's true, we can't leave this place tonight in the same way in which we came. It means that we need to go find someone to talk to. It means that we need to search out and find the root of these truths to see if this is really what you're saying. We are grateful for your servant Paul who penned these words and it, under your inspiration to blow our imaginations out of the water, to fill us up with the fullness of You. And for most of us, Lord, we're simply just scratching on the outside of a cage wanting to know what that's about. But we're praying that by Your Spirit You would let us in, finally and fully and demonstrably in. So Holy Spirit, would You shed the love of Christ abroad in this room tonight among us. Change us. Make us to be different because we came and heard the truth of your word. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.